pull that up? Yeah. Um, so the habit has been in the opening. Oh, you did put it up there. Okay. Um, the habit has been to open up with a prayer, and I've been scouring the internet trying to find prayers by scientists or for scientists, and we've been doing them. Um, what would we say and call and response? Responsive, style. yeah. Mm -hmm. But this one was written by uh, Victoria Johnson, and um, Victoria Johnson has. She was a PhD in biochemistry before she joined the priesthood of the Anglican Church. And so uh, before she went to seminary, she was a cancer researcher. And uh, now she is a canon in the uh, Church of England. But this is a prayer that she wrote for a gathering, a faith and science gathering, um, several years ago, actually. So I will begin with the first part, and then you will come in with the blue part. So. She says, Almighty and eternal God, God of electrons and black holes and supernovas, God of DNA and mitochondria and single-cell organisms, God of H2O, CO2, and even C60, the organic molecule but Mr. Fullerene, may our minds be open to the delights that can be revealed through science and technology. May we be open to questions and mindful of your grace revealed through Jesus Christ, the origin of all things, the Alpha and the Omega Point, the risen Lord who through a nature beyond nature trampled down death by death and gave us the endless song, Alleluia. Amen. All right. So uh, the next thing we typically do is kind of go through current developments, some kind of current development in science. Now last week we talked about some gravity waves coming in from the edges of the universe that might be supermassive black holes colliding. We used um, pulsars, the span of a galaxy, basically used a galaxy-sized lens to pick these up. And so that's, uh, that's been a cool development in the last, um, last few weeks that that uh, data has come out. Um, today I want to talk about something a little bit closer to home, which is the launch of India's Chandrayaan-3. Um, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But... The, as you can tell from the name, this is the third um, of its kind, and they are um, aiming a uh, rocket to uh, land on the moon. And so if they achieve this, they will be the fourth um, nation that's done this, the U.S., Russia, China, and now India. They'll be the second nation to have done this this century, right? And um, so this is actually a pretty uh, profound undertaking, and this is um, the, the first one uh, in 2008 uh, crash landed into the moon and it was part of the way that we discovered that there was water on the moon. So that's interesting. The second one, 2019, um, it successfully orbited the moon, it went into that kind of a pattern and sent down a lander which um, at the last minute crashed and so lost contact. So. Uh, uh, pretty successful trip up until the last moment. And so I was watching when that happened in 2019, I kind of, I knew a lot of people were on the edge of their seats, kind of waiting to see um, what would happen. And now um, this has launched um, just three days ago. And this, it was actually, I think, intended for 2020, got delayed probably due to the pandemic, I'm guessing. Um, and it should um, uh, land on the moon in uh, at the, the moon's south pole in August or September, depending on how things go. And if this, depending on how things go, then this may be a, a one of six missions that ha that unfolds in the next several months. 
So um, this is an exciting moment for, uh, the, for India, for the people of India. It's also an exciting moment for humanity as we become a multinational uh, space um, species. And, um, and I think it's really illustrative of how we learn even through mistakes, right? That, um, that we don't proceed from just success to success to success, but actually scientific progress comes from mistake after mistake after mistake. And instead of giving up when those mistakes happen, we build on them, we learn from them, we add that knowledge back into our, our repertoire, and we keep going. And so I think this is a, uh, a pretty nice moment. And, um, and yeah, here's a little bit of a picture of the kind of complexity of their, their mission uh, profile there. So anyway, that launched. We'll see how that uh, plays out in August. And uh, so we're going to read our scripture for today. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 3. All right. So over the last uh, several weeks, we've touched on a number of uh, scriptural ideas that uh, such as God is creator. Creation is a revelation of God. We are creative beings made in God's image, called to imitate our creator. Uh, we talked about um, the fact that in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, there began this movement to engage in science as a religious mission. And that um, culminated in the, the creation of uh, scientific institutions that still exist to this day. So this profound religious mo uh, mission was happening in the 17th century, 16th and 17th century. So that unfolded as, um, as the scientific revolution and led to science as we know it. Last week, we talked about um, that during this period of intense religious um, thought and devotion aimed at science, that um, very influential people were reading Genesis in a liturgical way, reading it as a pattern for human effort, human creativity, human learning. And that this was how um, people like Francis Bacon and others framed the scientific method. It was an imitation of God's own methodology of work that you could see written in Genesis 1. So that's where we left off um, last week. And so this week I want to kind of take us in a little bit different direction in thinking about what science is and how it works and how it connects with spirituality. And I want to start with maybe a weird question, which is this. What comes to mind when you think of scientists? Big Bang Theory. Okay, Big Bang Theory, okay. The, the show or the... the show. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> what else? Curiosity, okay, good. Very smart people. Very smart, mm hmm Yeah. Fun at parties. Okay. Is that... Sorry, ironically? Yeah. I like that, all right. Mm hmm Yeah, I... There's some interesting scientist parties. Um, yeah, what else? A lab, okay. So somebody in, like at work in this kind of rarefied environment, probably wearing a coat, specialized um, stuff. They're doing stuff in a weird place, right? It's an unusual, unusual space, abnormal. Academic, Academic yeah. Logical and, Logical and methodical, yeah. Okay. 
curiosity. What else? I don't think I've heard any negative. Well, I think sometimes it's not associated with atheism. Okay. So you prove there is no God because science is real. And yeah. Is yeah. Yeah. Science is often associated uh, in the in the public consciousness with atheism. And notice the phrase "science is real." We were having a Oh yeah, yeah. Did you hear that? I see that. Exactly. Yeah. You could practically have that tattooed on you somewhere. Science is real. So it's a maxim. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's um, yeah. That's interesting because it that idea science is real like implies like a sort of access to the truth that maybe others don't have, right? Like a kind of grip on grip on what's true. What else? Mm -hmm. Okay, and what it, does that? Do you think that entails anything about the person or like just just what you're kind of imagining them doing, like doing well, experiments? My background okay. is psychology. Okay. And you yeah. have to have experiments yeah. on it. There's different type ways of doing yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Sometimes who is funding their work determines the findings. Okay. You would certainly expect that, that to have some influence, right? Um, be hard for humans to escape uh, some influence by those kinds of things. Um, yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, frustration. Okay. And I think of oftentimes of trying to explain what they're doing to common people. Okay. Yeah. I'm busy with post, so sometimes it's very difficult to yeah. explain some of these things to you. You have to right. dumb it down, and you lose the detail, you lose the importance of it. So I would imagine there's a certain level of frustration. Right. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Nobody said spot. Yeah, that's. It's like one of the first faces. Yeah. Spock and Carl Sagan are the two faces I see immediately when someone Or like wild hair. Yeah. Like that's usually yeah. like a, a feature. Yeah. We, we, um, so a few years ago, I remember somebody asked this question to a, a class here. And I, I remember there were several different things that, that people shouted out, but I remembered one of them in specifically. I haven't heard that yet. Mm -hmm. Um, somebody shouted out, arrogant. What do you think about that? Maybe we've shifted in how we think about uh, things over the last few years. I don't know. I, so that, that stuck in my mind because um, I think some of the things that, that, that a few of you have kind of indicated do lead in the direction of kind of suggesting arrogance, right? Like, I've got a grip on the truth. I'm frustrated at explaining to normal people. I'm, I'm kind of living in my, um, uh, you know, ivory tower or something like this, right? Like, um, and uh, I think certainly there's a tendency to associate atheism and arrogance, right? Um, that's, those things uh, often are perceived as going together. So let, let's make this a little more specific. What, what comes to mind when you think of this scientist? Arrogant. <laughs> okay, all right. You're playing it Yeah, yeah. Psychologists will tell Any other thoughts about Richard Dawkins? Uh, Who is he? Who is he? Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah. 
pin down, you cannot say what the spark of what started. Oh, sure. Everything. Yeah. Yeah, um, so Richard Dawkins is, uh, I would say he has two identities. One is he's a very well-respected biologist who's done a lot of um, uh, work in, uh, he's most known for probably his book, The Selfish Gene, which I think really is a groundbreaking book in, in biology. Um, yeah, he, he coined the term meme, uh, so, you know, you have uh, the, inter, uh, the internet has him to thank for that, whatever. Um, yeah, and um, he's also, uh, especially in the early 2000s, known as one of the, what, what was it? Four horsemen of the, uh, atheism. Of atheism, yeah, something like that, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he's an outspoken um atheist and cr critic of religion, right? And it's, it really is more than just saying, I don't think there's a God. It's actually like, I think religion and Christianity in particular is uh, bad in some, some significant ways, right? And um, so, uh, so, yeah, I think I, I, have, I have mixed feelings about him personally because I do think he has contributed some interesting things. I do think when I look at his work on religion, that, I don't know if, maybe it's judgy, I would probably ca categorize that as arrogant. That, that seems like fair. I don't feel like he's coming at it from a, a very knowledgeable or curious standpoint. I think he's coming at it with a lot of uh, preconceptions. That's my, my feeling. Any other thoughts about Dawkins? Okay. Uh, what about this guy? Anybody know... Uh, Sam Harris. Okay, so he's one of the other uh, four horsemen of, of atheism. He's a, a neuroscientist. Uh, he's probably mostly um, known for being a, uh, at this point, being an internet uh, philosopher. Very influential. In prayer, by the way. <laughs> yes, that's that's a different pose. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, he's kind of a weird um, weird character because he is. Uh, very definitely an atheist, um, and he's also promoting um, uh, meditation uh, very strongly. So a kind of a kind of spiritual uh, path, you might say, uh, leading in a different direction. Um, all right, what about uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson? Any? <laughs> We've got some some strong opinions. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, I think I, I think that's probably the job description of of what he <laughs> some of the stuff. Put he forward as an expert in all these things, right? I don't think that's yeah. His, his <laughs> but you know, you need somebody who can. Yeah. Do you? Um, yeah. Do you have any more? Can you unpack that any? Like, what has he? Has that affected you in, in any particular ways, or? Yeah. John concurs. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, so crossing that, that uh, getting frustrated with people divide, right? Like being able to, to speak to, uh, to us commoners. That's good. Yeah. Uh, any other, any other thoughts, comments, feelings? Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> 
contamination. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. exactly right. All, all these, you know, back to your first question, you know, what, what, what is it? A scientist, what do you think about it? The, the first thing that I think, I'm more impressed with scientists who have looked into the abyss of everything that is known mm. and come away and say, you know, we got so much more to Yeah. Rather than, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, my limited knowledge of him, he'll give you an answer every, to every question. He thinks he knows the answer to every question. <laughs> Carl Sagan, on the other hand, would hmm. say, that's yet to be learned. Hmm. That's yet to be found out. Uh, Carl Sagan has an interesting approach to how he thinks about spirituality, at least in some some of his writings. Um, and his family, his daughter and and wife have too. They've written on on spirituality, so it's a a little bit more open uh, for them than than some others. That's interesting. Sometimes how they come across depends on what branch of science they're in. Yeah. Your theoretical physicists have no problems accepting things they can't see or know about except through an equation. Right. But yet they can't accept the, what we call the supernatural. But yet it's the same sure. view well, that you get off of. They've mapped the entire, uh, you know, complete existence, so why would they? Um, yeah, that, I think there different fields have um, different characteristic approaches and ways of talking and attitudes and so forth. Uh, feelings about about this guy. <laughs> A little too light for that one. <laughs> I thought about having the picture of Einstein where he's like sticking out his tongue and I wondered like if that would get different different responses or reactions. What do you think about him, his character, his personality? What's your impression, at least from the, from the media or from what you've seen, from the culture you've been exposed to? Visionary? Eccentric. Eccentric, yeah. A lot of the things he came up with came to him in dreams, which seems really interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he has an interesting relationship um, since it's been brought up with, with uh, spirituality. He, he's written uh, on that. He struggled with it, at least as a young person. Um, and, you know, he's routinely quoted in uh, all, all sides of different kinds of culture or stuff, right? And he said a lot of things, so there's a lot of things you can kind of pull out. Does, what, what do you feel like his personality? Do you think of him as... Um, quirky, funny, arrogant, humorless, humorous. Like, where, where do you think he lands on that? I don't think he's well known. I don't say well known. You know, there, there was a time when he was like the, what, the avatar of the Yeah, the icon the of something. Yeah. He was the icon, he was. Mm-hmm. You know, the wild hair, the really deep genius. It was, um, when did he come to the U.S.? He came from Europe, he came um, from Jewish background, it was after World War II? 
I don't I don't know. I don't remember that. Like that we know him the way people right after World War II I'm, you know, growing up when I did, I probably first encountered Einstein as a cartoon caricature uh, before, you know, like an actual image or something like that. Because there, there is that caricature of the, you know, this kind of a scientist, right? Yeah. Right. His, his primary wisdom was his definition of insanity. I think that is, one that is, that is, is most, his most famous one is that insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. Now, actually, that's on topic for today. Um, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to come back to that over and over, and hope, yeah. Um, okay, what about uh, what about this guy, Solomon? Um, any any thoughts, impressions, feelings about about him? Contradiction. Contradiction. Okay. Is anybody surprised he's on the list of scientists? Is there anybody? Yeah. Okay. I think someone <laughs> made me think, why is he on the list of scientists? What's why he's on the list of scientists? <laughs> well, well, I want to hear what's the contradiction. Um, more about that. Sure. Yeah, I think there's a command. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's a command against that. How you can be called the wisest man ever and do that? You gotta have a great press That's right. He was definitely curious. Find a source. Yeah. In many different ways, but trying to find the source of joy, happiness. Yeah. So, so, so we have, um, uh, you know, several books that are traditionally attributed to Solomon, right? And, you know, have wisdom and then, I, I'm not exactly sure what you call Ecclesiastes, kind of a, a, a meditation on, on depression and, and so forth. But, um, but uh, scripture also records that he, he, like, amassed, like, zoos and, like, did all this kind of, like, uh, botanical sorts of collection and so forth. And um, there are all these, um, you know, I think things that he compiled that we don't have, right? And this um, was very significant for uh, Christians um, throughout history, thinking about the role of science, right? Because Solomon had done all of this kind of scientific compilation work outside of his, uh, the search for wisdom that we have recorded in, in the Bible. I think one of the things to point out, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think in ancient times, you know, Josh was talking about wisdom today from James, and there's not um, a sharp distinction between knowledge and wisdom in ancient times in certain cultural contexts. These things sit side by side. So for him to be the wisest man ever to live towards Jesus, it was totally appropriate for him to you know, come up with proverbs, maxims, and uh, things like that, and then classify plants and animals yeah. and things like that that you did. So, wisdom and knowledge sit very closely together. Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts on, on these guys? This is Plato and Aristotle. Um, 
any feelings, impressions <clears throat> of them? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Is this the photo? Is this the image? This is the photo, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, Plato is pointing up, and Aristotle is kind of like gesturing, yeah, gesturing down. And so, this is, uh, well, you want well, to. I had it explained to me a long time ago. Um, Plato thinks in terms of the, of the forms, the pure knowledge. You know, it's like uh, metaphysical, metaphysical kind of. And uh, Aristotle is more like about what's happening pragmatically, what's here. And this is, they, they have opposites. Well, well almost opposites. Yeah, yeah. Don't call them opposites. Yeah, okay, call them opposites. They're opposite yeah. folks. They're philosophers. Yeah. Um, and that's right. Aristotle becomes incredibly influential in the West. Interestingly, Plato maybe more in the East, but. Uh, that's another story. All right, so what do these uh, folks all have in common? Uh, any, any just quick list of things that come to mind? Anything? What? I have to say her if they're all men. Ah, that's, a, that's good. Good, yeah, good comment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, true. Um, anything else? We were all uniquely created by God. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Their knowledge puts them at risk of certain kinds of temptation, their ego, things like that. I like that. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm going to give some uh, my typically very stupid comments here. Um, all were children at one point. Um, all are known for loving knowledge, uh, seeking out uh, knowledge. All have attained glory or fame. That's how they made this list, because I put the people up here that I thought you might have some kind of recognition of, right? Um, so the, <laughs> the, they're not necessarily representative of their, their various fields, uh, right? The, the people who are able to get up and talk and, and make a name for themselves are not necessarily um, the... Uh, average scientist, right? Um, all make, made mistakes, um, which has been alluded to somewhat. Now, so, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson made a mistake in saying that Pluto shouldn't be a planet anymore, but that's uh, another thing. Uh, Aristotle made a mistake that's a little bit trickier. So, um, does anybody recognize this? Uh, this the depiction? Um, yeah, so Aristotle, uh, as you said, like he was passed down as like, this is the guy. What he says is true. And what he said is that uh, heavier objects fall faster than lighter objects, right? Um, and so there's this, this typical depiction. We don't really know if this happened, but there's uh, that Galileo went up on the Leaning Tower of Pisa and dropped these weights and, and disproved Aristotle's idea because the weights fall at the same speed and they land at the same time, right? Does this make sense, right? So this is a kind of famous experiment um, that uh, was known during the scientific revolution where it's like, oh, Aristotle's idea was totally wrong, okay? Um, and 
and in fact, um, they did not, um, well, I'll say more about this, but this was, this was widely known to have been, to have been shown uh, false. Aristotle and Galileo live almost 2,000 years apart. So Aristotle's idea, his mistake, stood for roughly 2,000 years before someone challenged it. Now, since then, we've challenged it a lot. This is one of the examples. In 1971, uh, they, the U.S. landed on the moon, and they decided to use their time there to uh, take a hammer on the, the left and a feather on the right and see how this would actually work. And so uh, they have a lot of dramatic lead up, and they land at the same time. And this was broadcast to Earth, so we proved it, uh, proved that Galileo was right and Aristotle was wrong. Um, and this was actually important for the mission because they needed this to be true to get home. So uh, <laughs> this, this was, <laughs> that's right. Um, but you don't actually have to go to the moon and find a near vacuum to prove this, um, nor do you have to have a leaning tower of Pisa. Um, all you really have to have is like an inclined board. And this is probably actually how um, Galileo and other folks did it at first. They just put up a board and rolled two weights down it and, and looked at how fast it would you know, take. And guess what? It looks like Galileo. It doesn't look like Aristotle. Like Aristotle's idea here is wrong. And, um, and in fact, as Galileo kind of went on to say, actually, you don't even need a board. You can just kind of think about this for a few seconds, and you realize that if it's true that a, a smaller weight falls slower than a heavier weight, you just tie the smaller weight to the heavier weight and create lift so that you can uh, counteract the force, right? And so Galileo points out, this is, uh, this is obviously wrong. This is obviously a contradiction. It doesn't work. You just need to think about it for, for a minute. And then go out and test it on your board and make sure that's right. And then show off to your students at the Leaning Tower pizza, 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 and then go to the moon and like do it again, right? <laughs> so this did not take advanced technology to figure out. It did not. <laughs> that's right. So anybody, roughly speaking, uh, in those 2,000 years could have set up an experiment and tried this out and tested to see, is Aristotle right or is he wrong? And if he's wrong, what does that suggest about the rest of everything that we think we know about the universe, right? So what took so long? What took 2,000 years? to be willing to test, or to get, to get the motivation to test, or the idea to test. I mean, <clears throat> one of the thing, through lines with all these uh, guys is they must be really good and persuasive communicators. Yeah. And something tells me that it is almost sacrilegious, maybe, let's say, at some point, to, to suggest that he could have been wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, don't you think that there's probably in that 2,000 year period, someplace somewhere else, had somebody in that 2,000 years, but they were not in the middle where they were not, but they yeah. accepted it to be true. I mean, it could have been true, proven other than somebody, a scientist. Yeah. 
Yeah, so somebody could have, and probably did do some kind of experiment like this, and when they took it to the next person in line, they said, no, we're going with what Aristotle said. Right. Forget what you said, right? Um, because we've got this guy, right? So in 1620, uh, Francis Bacon was horrified by the realization that it had taken 2,000 years to challenge the most basic um, like idea of Aristotelian physics. This is what everyone in his world was educated. He was an educated person. He grew up being drilled in Aristotle, and no one in all this time had thought to challenge those ideas, and he thought, we live in a horror show. We live in this endless cycle of repeating the same stuff that has been wrong since the day it was said. And no one has stood up to it and actually been able to successfully challenge it. Well, he, he did when, it came, when he came along. Yeah. It, so all these folks like, were in this era cha challenging this stuff, but for the first time, really. Like, this was, like, all of a sudden, like, everybody's like, oh, maybe we need to actually take another look at Aristotle. Um, so part of what horrified uh, Francis Bacon was that he, he suspected that this was not the only example of a mistake that had stood for thousands of years without being challenged. And so he began to be really, really concerned about what kinds of things were floating around that people just were not even uh, inspecting. And so he says this interesting thing about the printing press. He says, the human race can miss and ignore remarkable discoveries even when they are lying at their feet. For though the inventions of gunpowder, silk from the silkworm, the mariner's compass, or sugar or paper may seem to depend upon certain properties of things in nature, the technique of printing certainly contains nothing which is not open and almost obvious. And yet men went without this magnificent invention for so many centuries. And he looks at, like, what are the, the mechanical things you would need to do to make a printing press? Somebody could have done this a long, long time ago, and they did not do it. So. Isn't that easy to say looking back? Well, it's, easy, it's way easy for us to say, right? Um, and it's easy for us to look at um, all these experiments we can do, and we can kind of, like, uh, reverse back. What's interesting to me is like Bacon is like living in this era where the printing press is actually being deployed for the first time and he's able to look at a bunch of these things and say uh, you know our you know three generations ago we could have done this four generations ago five generations ago and he has a sense of like what that actually entailed right so we have spacecraft we have airplanes we fly through the sky we connect wires, we send telegrams, we do all kinds of stuff that um, now is maybe more obvious to us, but even in his time, he could look around and he could say, I can see a ton of things, not only that we could have done um, 100 years ago or longer, but actually we could be doing now and we're still not doing. So this is, this is where... Yeah. So like Galileo, for example, was brought up on charges of heresy and put in exile because he thought the sun was in the center of the universe, not the earth. Yeah. Yeah, so that did happen. Um, 
it, I would say that's one of a number of things, right? And, and printing press too, also the church tells the printing press in church. Well, and the the use of it particularly to print scripture. Um, <laughs> so uh, there's um, there's some things there. That's true, um, but it's I would say that um, the top-down control is not the whole story, right? That is part of, a sto- of the story. But there is a lot of other stuff coming up because you could have uh, gone into some, you know, gone in, uh, over, crossed a border, found a safe place to do some of this stuff, and done it if you were sufficiently motivated. And lots of points of time. Come, um, we're running a little time. I want to uh, get to the next point here real quick. So, um, so what was the problem? Um, we talked about like authoritarianism that um, was handed down by by church and other institutions. Um, you had three great civilizations going. You had Western Europe, you had China, you had Central America. The isolation of those one from the other, there's many things invented in China, gunpowder and, and this type of thing, that didn't make it to Europe for a long time because yeah. of the lack of communication. Yeah. Well, and, and in each of those societies where they have inventions and so forth, you, you ask, well, what did, they, what did they do with them? And each society did kind of different yeah, things. And, and we have much more written history, yeah. even going back to Greece and so forth, than, than we have of the other two. Right. Yeah. Thanks partly to the Catholic Church that burned all the manuscripts in Central America that they could get their hands on. Okay, that's a ta- that's a tangent. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna plunge ahead here. So the um, so here we we might toss around a lot of different ideas of, about what the problem was and what the holdup was on doing all these things. Um, for for Francis Bacon, the answer um, seemed very obvious to him, and that was pride. And he thought so. See, er, you know, Aristotle made a mistake. But Aristotle's mistake, we all make mistakes. It's not a big deal, right? The question is, do we correct those mistakes? Do we look for those mistakes and try to fix them? And um, in the case of of Aristotle, um, not only did he not correct his own mistake, but a whole civilization had failed to correct his mistake. And in fact, had just passed on that mistake over and over and over. And so Bacon thinks this is not just individual pride, it's a kind of um, communal pride that embodies this prideful attitude towards God and nature and so forth. And so he talks about this, he grew up in this context of people who learn Aristotle, and he says um, these writers who have been despots of science, right, the authoritarianism, and the presumptuous arbiters of nature have always accused the intricacy of nature, the mystery of reality, the inadequacy of the human mind. But these accusations are not signs of modesty. On the contrary, they denote a boundless pride and arrogance. For such philosophers wish to imply that all scientific matters which have been dealt with by others than themselves or their masters are outside the sphere of research. Thus they translate their own incompetence into a senseless slander of nature. He's saying... If I didn't learn it, if I didn't study it, if I'm not an expert in it, then it's not 
a real science. That's what people's attitude was. And so all of these people built their careers on being experts in Aristotle, and if you come to them and say Aristotle is wrong about something, they would lose status. Their arrogance insisted on saying Aristotle was right about this, and I'm the arbiter of what Aristotle says. I'm the expert in that. And so this is Bacon's like, assessment of the whole world he lives in. It's consumed by pride, which, allow, which forbids this ability to actually discover errors, correct mistakes, and do science as we think of it. Now, this is not a new idea with Bacon. He is um, just pulling from Scripture. And so he looks at this verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So this is something, this is a, a thing that, that Paul is, is aware of as well. And someone mentioned this idea that knowledge kind of fills the ego. Now, Paul is not saying knowledge is bad. In fact, the knowledge he's talking about in this context is knowledge he gave them and wanted them to use. What he's saying is, you can use your knowledge to tear down others and elevate your own pride, or you can humble yourself and use your knowledge to build up others. That's in context what he's, he's doing here. And so Bacon leans on this and says, this is, this is the answer here. If we just pursue knowledge without combining it with love and humility, we will do another 2,000 years of failing to make any kind of scientific progress. And so this is um, really the spirit of the 1620 work, the Novum Organum, which some secular atheists have said should be the starting point of our civilization. We should date year zero to this because it's the beginning of secular science. And the core of what that that document says is really contained in this. He says, it is no less true in this human kingdom of knowledge than in God's kingdom of heaven that no man shall enter into it except he become first as a little child. Humility and love are Francis Bacon's idea of what science needs to actually work. That's the message of his whole work and that is the, the path he lays out into the future. Um, and he doesn't think, he doesn't even trust um, himself or others to be humble. It's not just, we need to be humble, let's go be humble. He's like, actually, we need something to make us be humble. We need something to humble us. We need a practice that continually kind of brings that humility into in, um, our world. And so he, this is what he's laying out. Like, here are practices you can take to actually instill this humility in yourself, and so I'll skip ahead a couple. He's of, not going to quote David. Yeah, it's a it's a big quote. That's he, a man. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Is that the guy with the hands? No, David Bentley Hart. David Bentley Hart basically backs up um, Bacon's assessment of what Aristotle's problem was. It's like it's a culture of pride. So just because we're out of time. Um, this is current commentary uh, on science, and I think it's interesting that um, what you can see from a lot of scientists um, is a, a conviction that although out here we may act arrogant and uh, climb for status and do all these th kind of things, nevertheless, when we go in and do our work in these ways and in these fields, that is where we're entering into this domain of humility. 
and that may be idealized because we're all human beings and so forth, but I think there is something to it because these are practices and a tradition and a culture of actually forcing people to confront humility. So this is what one theoretical physicist says, science is born from this act of humility, not trusting blindly in our past knowledge and our intuition. Science itself is actually a prescription for humility, one researcher says. Uh, this headline, I like, science is enforced humility. Uh, the fundamental strength of science is that it compels its practitioners to confront their own fallibility. And um, the ways in which this happens, particularly, uh, there's, a, there's a lot we could unpack if we had more time, but you are continually faced um, with the, the, the opportunity for someone, anyone, to challenge your work, right? Einstein was a uh, census, a lowly census worker who came out with a, a bold new theory of the world that became the reigning theory. And at any point in his career, uh, if he made a mistake, and he did make mistakes, anyone could stand up and say, here's your mistake. Einstein, in that, mo in that act of, of doing science, could not escape the need to bring humility into it, because um, the very practice of sharing your work in this kind of open way where others can critique it is that kind of thing. And as well, you're doing this with experiment, right? There was a mention of this. Testing your ideas against nature. As Bacon would say, testing your ideas against God's revelation. And if nature says you're wrong, you have to accept you're wrong. And um, anyway. So that's, that's um, <clears throat> there's a lot more to be said about that, but that's what I wanted to get to today, the idea that actually uh, at the core of science as it should be practiced and as it's practiced when it's successful um, is this idea of embodying and institutionalizing uh, humility. All right. Yeah, thanks so much, everyone. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> humility above all, like when talking about God, right? Uh, and um, part of the, the thing that Bacon is bringing to this is like, when we're talking about nature, we're talking about something that God did. We need to bring humility to it. When we're talking about God, we need to, we're talking about uh, something that needs humility as well. When I think uh, the continual departure from humility is always there, like we're always doing that, we're always failing, um, and that is the consequence. We lose, we lose our grip on lots of stuff. So, yeah.
Thank you so much, everyone.